Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all again this morning. I'm excited about week two. And we've changed up a little bit of the online platform, so hopefully it's a little clearer, a little closer. And I'm going to draw today. And so we're going to, I know, I love my maps. And I've never done it where we're on video online. So we're going to see how this works. So, you know, glad you're here. As we continue today, just a little bit of housekeeping. The first thing I want to make sure you all know is that we do have a companion book that goes along with this year's study. We are using the Exodus and Leviticus for Everyone, written by John Golden Gay. This is available online. You can get it wherever you buy books, or there are a few dozen copies still left in the St. Michael Bookshop. And so we are welcome to go by. In fact, do go by and get a copy in the bookshop. Um, we had obviously four or five months ago thought that we would be right back to it everybody in person and so i think the bookshop stocked them for that so if you need one want one run by the bookshop we'd appreciate it and this is just something not necessary to read but as we go along i find this series the everyone series to be highly accessible very easy to understand something that unpacks not even whole chapters often it's you know sort of one like half or a third of a chapter as we go through and it's really helpful if you miss an idea or maybe you want a little bit more information i don't teach directly from this but occasionally we overlap and so i do find this very helpful in addition the rbs page of our website stmichael.org rbs is where you can find all of our past lessons and anywhere you get podcasts our podcasts have been updated for the last four years. And so we have audio recordings going back to when we did Luke and Acts, plus Genesis, Daniel, Revelation. And of course, as we go forward with the study of Moses, we'll have those podcasts. And so if you listen to podcasts, you can search for Rector's Bible Study, whichever app you use for your podcasts, and it will come up. And then sometimes that's easier if you aren't able to make it live or watch the video. All right. So let's jump in with a prayer and we'll get rolling. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today. We give you thanks for the friends who surround us, either physically or digitally. We ask that today you calm our hearts. You empty us of stress and worry and anxiety. Help us to put down all the things that weigh on us. That we can make space, make space for your spirit to fill us up. And as we study the great story of your salvation work in the world, may we ourselves be inspired, inspired to be transformed and to reach out in love to all those we meet as we build your kingdom here on earth. All this and all the blessings and prayers we hold in our hearts, we offer up in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I kind of like that prayer. That was good. Um, <laughs> so we have some questions from last week. One in particular has to do with Bible translations. And so I thought it was a good one that we can just hit before we begin today's study as we continue into chapter two. The one question came up about the NIV. And I actually didn't realize this, so I did a little digging. The NIV was written decades ago, and it was meant to be a very good normal language translation. So as I noted last week, we use the NRSV in the Episcopal Church. That's what we read on Sunday mornings, and that's what I use in this study whenever I read passages of Scripture. It is the most accurate translation that we have, academically, intellectually, linguistically, that sort of stuff. But occasionally the language can be a bit clunky. And so if there is clunky language, I recommend the NIV as being a very good translation, but it simply softens the edges. Well, so someone wrote last week that they have the 2011 version of the NIV. I didn't realize that was a thing. So I wanted to let you know what I discovered, which is the NIV was written decades ago. The TNIV, today's New International Version, came out about 15 years ago. That's the one I was familiar with. It was a modernization of the language, and it sought to be as inclusive as possible with its language. 
Well, apparently, lots of you know, nice people freaked out. And so they went back and they updated the NIV to, I guess, not be so inclusive in its language, but still a more modernization of the language itself. And so there are three versions now, the original NIV, the 2011 NIV, and then if you're so inclined, the TNIV, which is today's new international version, whatever. Um, find a Bible you like. I always tell people, if you're reading the Bible, that's good. Just read it. Um, whichever version you have, whichever is close enough, read your Bible. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting thing that I would just drop in there. Now today, we are finishing the second half of chapter one and going through chapter two. That's what we're doing today. In a sense, we are wrapping up the preamble of Moses's story before God arrives. So in the first two chapters of Exodus, we really have God not quite present yet. Now, I don't believe God wasn't present, but the way the story is told, the people did not know of God's presence. They were not aware of, in any explicit way, God's presence with them. And so the way that they tell the story is, God wasn't quite there yet. And so we know God just appears, where? In the burning bush, right? So we're not quite there yet. We're going to get there soon. This week, we finish off the story of Moses's childhood and early adulthood, preparing him to receive God in the burning bush. That's really where we go today. What I want to note is that there's not a lot about the story before Moses meets God in the burning bush. If we've seen movies, which all of us have seen the movies, right, or TV shows or whatever about Moses, a lot of time is spent on the stuff that's basically a chapter and a half in Exodus because it's sort of juicy, right? There's not a lot of detail there. Moses is born under a dark cloud. He is saved from being killed. He's raised in the Egyptian court, but he's not really from there. And then he discovers that his people are being mistreated. He gets in trouble. He's jettisoned. He meets a girl at a well out in the middle of nowhere, gets married, has a kid, and then God speaks to him in the burning bush, right? All of that happens, and that's it. That's the only detail we have. So to fill out all of that action is seductive, right? I mean, you can put a lot in those gaps. And we know if we look at any movies that have been done about Moses, most of the time spent in the movies is spent in that part of his story. Then it's almost like, and then the plagues, which is, there's drama in the plagues. And then he receives the Ten Commandments, they become Jewish, they go to the Promised Land, the end, right? Usually that's like the last 90 seconds of the movie, right? And da-da, they're in the Promised Land. And so what I, what I wanted to do today is just to note that we seem to jump over what is for many of us the meatiest part of the story, or at least perhaps equal to the plague story, pretty quickly. And so sometimes when I have done this in the past, people have said, that's it? I mean, that's all there is? Yes, that's all there is. Everything else is very creative. And so we're going to do that section today. And the big idea in our study here is really the character of Moses. I want us to know what the story says, and I want us to know the details. I want us to know where he goes. I'm going to draw a map because I don't know how many people last week said, are you going to draw maps again? Which <laughs> warms my heart. So I'm going to draw a map. Um, but those details of place and location are only so important. What I really want us to focus on and really kind of grab at and squeeze is who Moses is as a person. Because it's Moses's character, just like it will be David's character, that really inform how the first century followers of Jesus understood his purpose in the world. And so for us as Christians, how the character of Jesus is understood is rooted in the character of Moses and the character of David. And so I'm going to try and make sure we ring that bell multiple times as we go. So as we get in, if I get too sidetracked with details of maps and things like that, ask as many questions as you want about character. Because with Moses and David in particular in the Old Testament, we get a very rich 360-degree look 
at their character in a way that almost no other characters in the Old Testament give us. We might have names, we might have moments, but we don't get the full picture and complexity of the person beyond really Moses and David and a couple other people we get a decent amount, but they're really the big ones. Okay, any questions before we jump into the second half of chapter one? Character, place, translation, any of that stuff from even last week? All right, let's go. Chapter 1, we're going to start verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. And I am going to read everything in second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 because it's just good. So here we go. 1.15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's hilarious. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. All right, we'll pause there. I think the first obvious question here is, why does Pharaoh want to kill the boys? We don't actually get a why in this story. We simply hear that Pharaoh wants to kill all the boys. Now, remember what I said last week. We have the structure of a story that is then taken and applied to Jesus' story. So when we see in Matthew the whole infanticide with Herod seeking to kill the baby boys, we know, or hopefully we know, that every Jewish person who heard that story would immediately think of Moses. No question. Not a person would have missed that connection. In Matthew, we know why Herod wants to kill the boys. Herod is threatened because a new king is being born. There is a prophecy that a king is being born in Israel, and Herod's the king. And so Herod doesn't want any challengers. And so Herod wants to kill all the baby boys so that he doesn't get challenged for his power. In this story, we don't get that detail. We simply hear that Pharaoh wanted to kill the kids. Now, what is interesting, and this just for our historic knowledge, there is no evidence or record that this ever happened in Egypt. So one might think, again, that I said last week, we don't really have clarity of record. We haven't discovered yet any clarity of record of the Hebrews being in Egypt. One might think that a major moment of infanticide would make the historic record. No, there is nothing. And so where does this come from? We don't know. Why is it here? That is an easier answer. Why is it here? It's because Moses needs to be special. From the very beginning, before he has any agency himself, he is set apart. And so in this story, what we get is Pharaoh, who is all-powerful, seeking to kill the baby boys. Now, his first attempt is undermined, but his second attempt succeeds. We know it must succeed because we get the story of Moses being set in a basket on the Nile. Well, they're not going to float their baby down the river if babies aren't actually being killed. So the second attempt works. Moses is saved. Moses is set apart. And his continued emphasis of being set apart goes into the way he is raised and all of that stuff. We'll get there. The other thing I want to point out in this section is the strength of these midwives. Now put yourself in their shoes. I think we like as modern people to read this and you think, go girl, right? I mean, you're gonna resist Pharaoh, good for you. 
That's not a thing back then, right? You resist Pharaoh, you die on the spot, okay? There is no strength. There is no good for you for standing up to power. You know, speak truth to power. No, you don't. You get killed. And so these midwives are doing something extraordinary. It's important to also note we know their names. I cannot underscore how unique it is that we know the names of side characters, especially women, especially women who would have served in a particular capacity that was not special or held up or exalted in any way. Their names are Shipra and Pua. We know their names, which means in the grand story of Moses, it is very much an intention that these women are remembered for doing something really, really special. If you notice, we don't know Pharaoh's name. We don't know Pharaoh's daughter's name. They're simply Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. But these two midwives, they get named. And so we should not simply gloss over that kind of literary detail that can make such a huge impact in understanding the point that the storytellers are trying to make. These are remarkable women who have done something that, of course, when you connect it with the whole story, is meant to help fulfill God's purposes, right? So if you imagine that Pharaoh had to somehow be undermined in order to ultimately save Moses, then what they did was divine, godly work right here. Okay. Any questions about that or thoughts? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, so the question is, we do not have, we have not discovered historical evidence that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, right? We don't, we have not yet discovered historical evidence that Moses existed outside of the Bible. And it was interesting, there was a note made um, in, last, in last week's live stream that Moses is also in the Quran. I said it was only in the Bible. That is true. Moses is also in the Quran. But Essentially, outside of the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran, which are all kind of threads of the same Abrahamic tradition, Moses does not exist. So it is true that they're all there. When you fast forward to the first century, Herod is absolutely a historic figure, no question. We have plenty of historians that talk about Herod. We have first century historians who record people like Jesus. So yes, although most of what we know of Jesus as a person comes from the Bible, there are historians that have no connection to the church, no religious purpose really, who actually record people who were consequential. And Herod for sure, there are plenty of stories of that. Jesus. Oh, your question is whether we have historic record of the infanticide. I don't know. I will find out. I'm not gonna make stuff up. So, um, I, that's a good question. I will look that up and I will find out. That's uh, a great question. Um, it is interesting, and we, we talked a little bit about, or I talked a little bit about this when we did Luke a few years ago. Matthew and Luke, are the only two of the four Gospels in the Bible that have birth narratives. So Mark just starts with baptism, John just starts with baptism. Matthew and Luke have completely different birth narratives. They are not, with the exception of Mary, <laughs> I mean, so Jesus has a mom, that's about it. Um, otherwise, they're very, very different. So the story we would tell that we do in Christmas pageants and all that sort of stuff is taking these two stories and putting them, fusing them together. Now, there is nothing wrong with putting them together. Once one gospel has shepherds, one gospel has wise men. One gospel has the infanticide and the flight to Egypt. One gospel has Gabriel coming to Mary. One has Gabriel coming to, Ma to Joseph. Now, could Gabriel have come to both Joseph and Mary? Sure, why not? Could there have been wise men and shepherds? Absolutely, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. 
but they are both telling two very different stories. And it is very, very likely, given their flavor, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and Luke is writing to a Gentile audience primarily. Given Matthew's flavor of being focused to a Jewish audience, it would make great sense that he tells the story of the infanticide because he knows his Jewish audience would immediately know the story of Moses. Whereas for Luke, if he's writing to Gentiles, who's Moses, right? I mean, I mean yeah, maybe they, they've heard his name, but that immediate reference to this moment in Exodus, Gentiles would not know that. That, that would totally miss them. And so why even include it? I'll look it up. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes. Oh, Kristen, okay, hold on. I want to make it clear, I do not think Moses didn't exist. I think that we have not discovered historic evidence that Moses existed outside of the Holy Scripture. That's very different. So I can, um, I sympathize with the literary argument that some scholars have made that The character of Moses we will look at in Exodus and beyond could be just too superhuman, too big, too much. And so maybe Moses was really the story of multiple leaders who did good things over an expanse of time, maybe. And we see examples of this within the tradition. Some of you may know that the book of Isaiah happens over the course of a very long amount of time, and it is pretty much universally agreed that there were at at least two, if not three, prophets who, when the story was told, all became Isaiah. It doesn't mean that it's not a good story that is true that we can learn from and be inspired by, but it was simply a technique, right? Similarly, There are 14 letters attributed to Paul in the Bible. We're almost completely universally accepted that only seven of those were actually written by Paul. The others were written by someone who simply used Paul's name. Well, why would they do that? Because Paul was known. If you got a letter from Paul, you read that letter, right? If you got a letter from Chris, you might be like, who's Chris, right? And so if I really wanted to be heard, I might sign... Pope Francis, right? You'd open that letter, right? So in a similar sense, as the story of Moses is told, there is no malicious intent to perhaps unify good stories under an umbrella of a one person. Now, I am totally fine with Moses being incredible and in a sense superhuman and it being one guy who did all that stuff. What's the problem? There's no problem with that. I'm fine with that. We just don't know. And that's one of those things where what I want us to be able to hold in tension is ideas and stories that inspire us and that teach us and guide us and form us, and then not stepping over the line into literalism, where now we begin to argue with people about being right and they are wrong. That's where I want us to stop. We just can't, we can't. Because if we are honest and intelligent and we read literately, we just can't go that far. It doesn't mean it's not true. I believe it's true. It doesn't mean it's not inspirational. It inspires me. But you gotta stop there. You just can't go farther than that. Any other? Thoughts or questions? It's a good reminder that for those of you watching online, you can make comments in the chat fields and Bub will help pass those questions along. Anyone else? All right, then let's keep going. Chapter two, the birth of Moses. Chapter two, verse one, we'll read a few. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. 
The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. We'll pause there. What I find very compelling, one of the facets that I find very compelling of this story is it's very unique. I'm going to build off the same idea about Shifra and Pua. Here you've got the action of the story being pushed forward and sustained by all the women. So you've got Shifra and Pua who resist Pharaoh. You've got Moses' mother who hides her baby. You've got Moses' sister who walks in the reeds of the river to make sure he is safe. You've got Pharaoh's daughter who sends her maids to pull him out of the river. Now, I just as an aside, and maybe this is the Floridian in me, but if you've ever been to the Nile, where are you not going? Into the reeds of the river. Why? That is where the crocodiles are. You know, I read this story and I cannot help but think, what are they doing? Get away from the river. I mean, I can't tell you how many little dogs I have heard stories about getting eaten by alligators in Florida because they were sniffing along the side of a lake or a river, right? And so I can't, I'm just, that's an aside, sorry. I read the story and I think there's no way one of these people was not eat, bitten by a crocodile. That's, that's the first miracle of Exodus. Okay, so <laughs> here we have women driving the story right? It's woman after woman after woman after woman. We can, with our modern eyes, just kind of miss how truly remarkable this is. We can just skip over it because we're like, sure. I mean, of course, a midwife is not going to randomly kill another woman's baby. Of course not, right? And of course, a mother is going to hide her baby and try to keep him alive so he is not killed. Of course, of course a big sister is going to try and save her little baby sibling if she can do it. Of course, right? Women aren't going to see a baby crying in a basket in the river, potentially about to get eaten by crocodiles and not pull him out of the river, right? So, I mean, all of these things we might consider as just obvious, right? Every single moment makes total sense, completely believable that all of these women would do what they did. But if you put yourself thousands of years ago in the place of the, sorry, the men who wrote this story, it is actually remarkable that the way they tell the story of who is arguably the greatest Jewish leader, period, everything that gets him going is surrounded by all of these women. And I just think that's pretty remarkable. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay, we'll stop there again. There are a lot of things you could say about these verses. Let's just unpack the action we know. Moses is put in a basket. His sister's following along, you know, conceivably at a distance, but just wants to see what happens. So she sees what would have been just shocking, right? There's Pharaoh's daughter who gets the baby. And so in a moment of clarity, very clever, she is the one that actually goes. So by the way, it's Miriam, right? We're going to figure this out. So I'm just going to use her name, even though we don't know it yet. Miriam goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like a nursemaid? How clever is that? And so then the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, why don't you go get a Hebrew woman to nurse this child? Now, why a Hebrew woman? 
mm, a couple ideas, right? One is maybe that's sort of normal, right? We know that in, in history, monarchs, maybe extremely wealthy people, you, you name it, regularly get other people to raise their children, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have heard stories of people nowadays who, you know, they, they never had strong relationship with their mother because they were raised by a nanny or someone who, and you know, their mother might die and that is, you know, unfortunate. But when their nanny dies, I mean, they're destroyed because in a sense that she was their mother. It is very conceivable that Pharaoh would have had this system in place where the princess, so to speak, would not have done that sort of thing, right? Nursing a child, A, not her biological child, B, probably wouldn't have nursed a biological child anyway. You would have had other women do that for you. Why a Hebrew woman? Mm, it was suggested, right? So Miriam's clever. But could there have been an indication that this baby was not Egyptian? Potentially. Egyptians, ethnically, would be different than the Semite people. And so there could be visual cues where an Egyptian person would have seen a Semitic person and understood the difference. Egyptians are relatively broad in their ethnicity. Um, skin tones range the whole gamut. Um, you know, facial shapes and hair and all that sort of stuff run the gamut. But it is very conceivable that it would have obviously been a an Israelite baby, not an Egyptian baby, in the basket. And so perhaps there was a sense that kind of go back and nurse the child. Why would Pharaoh's daughter have taken Moses in and raised him? We don't know. Many people have postulated that it could be that Pharaoh's daughter couldn't have her own children. Um, and so perhaps she I, identified an opportunity to essentially raise a child. It could be that she was just kind and generous and saw a baby in need. That seems highly out of character for a monarch in history, but maybe. Um, one way or the other, the point of this story is not the specifics. The point of this story is really the exceptionalism. Moses is, again, exceptional. Not only was Moses born and saved, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court as a Hebrew, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And so he's obviously special, right? I think that's good enough. Yes. I didn't realize he knew he would get Hebrew when he was living there. Ah. So the comment was, didn't realize that he knew he was Hebrew, right? An Israelite. Um, yes, so we have... The stories we've inherited, particularly from movies, make it seem as if Moses was just raised right alongside the others and then had this epiphany moment, right, where he's like, what, I am Israelite? And then you read the actual scripture and you think, well, he should have known, right? Because look at what it says. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took her as her son. Well, okay, so we don't know what grew up means, at least grew up has to mean was weaned, right? I mean, that, that has to be baseline starting point. But weaning, I don't know, a couple years potentially, um, that's longer than many modern parents will breastfeed, but could. Um, grew up could also mean out of, I was going to say out of diapers, I don't know, did, whatever, like, uh, controlling their bowel movements, so to speak. Um, but it does seem as if, you know, three, four, five years old is not too far a stretch. So at that point, we all know any four or five-year-old would absolutely recognize their home, right? The people who raised them. And leaving that place to go somewhere else, even if later on in adult life, they don't have photographic memories of whatever they were doing for the first few years of their life, 
they know they came from somewhere else. Uh, th that at least would have stayed with him. It is true that the way they tell the story in Exodus, we're going to get there when we get to the rest of chapter 2, Moses does seem to know that those are his people. Uh, I, I guess grew up, could be older as well, right? There's nothing here indicate that he might not have been a teenager. I mean, could grow up, be he hit puberty, and then went and was, we don't know. So one way or the other, most of the ways that the stories have been told of Moses in movies takes advantage of him not knowing to help create conflict in the story. That's very engaging. But the actual verses here in Exodus don't really imply that. I think the implication is much clearer that Moses knew he was not Egyptian, which I also think makes sense if we're talking about physicality. So if you imagine you take a, you know, a classic Semitic person, put them next to an Egyptian, they really don't look alike, right? There is clarity around this way. Did I, have I told you this story? Okay, you're gonna love this. So I was, some of you may know I'm half Lebanese. So my dad's family is full Lebanese. And so the Phoenician people are kind of connected to the Greeks and the Turks, right? It's sort of the Mediterranean branch of the Semitic line that we discussed last week. Um, and so they were in Lebanon, they were, Orthodox Christians came to America in the early 20th century, became Roman Catholics. So that's why I was raised Catholic. Anyway, Nicole and I were in Cairo back in 2010. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with 2010. Um, and we were taking an elevator up, y'all, I'm going to forget. There's that cool tower. You can take an elevator up and you can see the city. It's right off Tahrir Square. Um, and so we're in this elevator with an elevator operator might be the only elevator I've ever been in with an elevator operator. Um, we get in, he punches the buttons, and he's staring at me in the elevator. It's a little too much, like really looking hard at me. And I'm trying not to look him in the eye because that's strange. Um, and finally, he says to me, are you Lebanese? I have never, to this day, it's the only time anyone has ever recognized that. Because I'm, I mean, y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty white. Um, and I'm, I'm red, and I was born with red hair. I mean, not classic Lebanese, I'll just say. Um, so I looked at him and I said, how did you know? And he said, your nose. He's exactly right. If next time you can get us, if Mary Lesman and I stand next to each other, you know we have the same nose. Like, it is that Lebanese nose. And, but who knows that? The Egyptian did. And so I've always remembered that because I think in this kind of story, we may not be so clearly aware of some of those physical differences. You are if you are there. And so the idea that Moses, being an Israelite, would have somehow duped all the Egyptians into thinking that he too was Egyptian, no chance. I think that is not possible. So, when did he discover he was not Egyptian? Could it have been that from the beginning he knew? Maybe. Could it have been that as a teen, when he is going through all of that self-awareness, he figures it out? At some point, before we get to the next verses, he has figured this out. And unfortunately, if I know, you know the way that most children grow up, somebody else probably told him, right? I mean, if you think about the way that kids grow up, he, somebody else probably made fun of the way he looked at some point. And he went back to his mom, Pharaoh's daughter, right? Why are they making fun of me? How natural is that? And you kind of have to just have a moment, right? And so somewhere along the line, he figured this out. Maybe from the beginning, maybe later on, but he will know before we get to the next verses. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. 
He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why did you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. So we'll pause there. Remember at the very beginning I said character matters. Now we're starting to get the character of Moses. Up to this point, Moses is simply the toy everyone else is playing with, right? Whether the midwives didn't kill him, his mother hid him, his sister protected him, Pharaoh's daughter raised him, Moses is acted upon by everyone else. Now we get to Moses is making choices and Moses is taking action. Moses goes out to his people. He knows. He knows who he is. He saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew, and it says one of his kinsfolk. He killed the Egyptian, hid him in the sand. Okay, let's stop there. That's a thing. I mean, let's pause. The first thing we see Moses do himself is kill an Egyptian for hurting one of the Hebrews. That's rough. You talk about building a character. This is not the way you necessarily want to build a character that would then earn compassion or likability points with the viewers. Okay, so you're telling this story and the first thing you hear of Moses is he killed someone. Now, maybe it's a righteous killing. Maybe we read this story and we say, well, that Egyptian deserved it. Really? It's hard for us to justify a killing, period. Now, I do not want to get into just war theory. That's a different class. But there is a, it is challenging to take this story at face value and begin to like or sympathize with Moses. So part of the way the storyteller is telling the story is giving you a very sharp edge right from the beginning. It, I don't think this is accidental storytelling. I think the storyteller is being very intentional to make this the character you see of Moses. And why? Well, I think one answer could be you need Moses to kind of... How do I say this without cursing? Um, you need Moses to be strong. You need Moses to kick something. Um, kick butt. I can say butt, right? That's family-friendly. Um, and so Moses comes out of the gate with this strength. He is decisive. He takes action. He is strong, physically strong, right? If you think about what just happened, well, an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew slave is probably a big person, right? Who are the people who are put over the slaves? They're strong, right? They're the bouncers. They're the ones that get things done. Moses killed that guy. So Moses is not some wilting violet. It's important for us to have that piece of Moses' character first, because then the rest of the story kind of flows from that point. Let's keep going. I stopped halfway through verse 15, so we'll start with 15b. Moses settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock, but some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave this man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. Okay, like I said, action happens fast. We get a whole lot in just a few words. 
So Moses has fled Egypt because he's been discovered, right? The Hebrews are now saying, you're going to kill me too? And far. And so Moses gets all the way there across the desert. And so rightly, we see this scene. I'm sorry, I, I just, I can't get Cecil B. DeMille out of my head when I do this. And so we see this scene, right, where Moses has gone across the desert. He is exhausted. He is tapped out. And he finds this well. The daughters of Ruel have come to the well to water their flock. Other shepherds come, they push them away. Moses comes to their defense. Okay, comes to their defense. You think those shepherds who push those girls away are going to go quietly? No, no. So comes to their defense is a very concise way to say he had to beat them away. And so here he has crossed the desert, is likely exhausted, fleeing and running for his life. And shepherds come to the well and he beats them away. Remember what shepherds are. Shepherds are not the quiet weaklings, right? Shepherds are the ones that will fight off predators to protect the sheep. These are strong people. Again, we hear the same idea reiterated Moses is strong, okay? Moses killed the Egyptian who, was the, who ran the slaves. That guy's a big guy. Moses crosses the desert and even in his exhaustion is able to beat away a group of shepherds. That is not an easy task. And so that, it makes sense that when the girls go back and Ruel says, why are you back so soon? And they say, oh, well, a guy not only beat away the shepherds who were threatening us, but then watered our flock. What does that mean? Where is the water coming from? The spigot? No. You are putting a bucket down a well and lifting a bucket of water over and over and over again. That's physical labor. So not only did he beat these guys away, but then he watered their flock, pulled all the water up, for the entire flock. So no wonder Wells like, where is he? Why did you leave him there? You know, he's like, where, where's this guy? Give me this guy, bring him in. Let me give him food. Let me entertain him. Let me give him one of you, you know? So, you know, this is, this is a moment where we're all, all of the story wrapped around is meant to leave us understanding that Moses is extraordinary right? He has done multiple things that seem extraordinary. And you see the reaction of the people around him that he is something special. That's it, right? Again and again and again. Moses is special and unique and extraordinary. That's what he's really telling us. Now, I do want to do a little moment so you know where we are geographically. <laughs> and I don't know if this is going to work online, so we're going to try. I've got my little thing over here so I can see where I am. I think it's in this frame now. Good, okay. So, geographically, it's important for us to understand what is happening. So, we've got a little, an interesting kind of thing happening here. Egypt is here. So, this is the, this is the Mediterranean. Okay. And then we've got Cairo is up here. This is Sinai. This down here would be Mount Sinai. And then over here is Midian. So you've got the two seas here. This is the Red Sea right here. Sea of Akbar right there. And so Moses would have left Egypt and essentially either crossed here into Midian or might have even gone around down into Midian. One way or the other, this is a lot of space. Okay? Can you all see this over there? Good? Well enough? I should say up here is Israel. So Moses is coming down into Midian, far away from Egypt. This isn't just 
across the fence, so to speak. He has traveled, which is why the whole idea of physically being able to do what he did when he got to Midian is significant. Ultimately, where we will get in the wilderness when the Israelites wander is they go all over Sinai around here. Mount Sinai is down here in the southern tip. And of course, you get kind of Saudi Arabia out into this direction, into this area. So they may or may not get back to Midian. But what happens in the Exodus is that, I don't have another color available just right now. In the Exodus, they will come out from Egypt, they'll wander around, and then they'll come up here, and they'll enter the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, across the Jordan River from the east. Because all of this area here is desert. Remember I said last week, Israel is sort of in three parts. The southern part is desert. The central part where you have Jerusalem is, it can grow some stuff, like olive trees. The northern part can grow lots of stuff. That's where you get your figs and all your fruit and all that stuff. So the land of Canaan, so to speak, the promised land, is going to be that sort of Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Jericho, obviously Jericho, area, which is pretty arid, right? I don't know if you've been to the Dead Sea recently. Not a lot lives there. So this is the land that Abraham would have settled in because it's the land no one wanted. And so he could have raised flocks out in that area. And so when they all came down into Egypt at Joseph's invitation, they would have made this trek. Moses goes a slightly different direction down into Midian where he meets Ruel, marries Zipporah, and then has a child. Good? Sir. Hold on. Your question is why Zipporah or sisters identified Moses as Egyptian? Yeah. Last week, there was a question about who stayed when Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers and all their family came to Egypt. And I said, you probably had a branch of the Semitic line. It could have been, you know, Abraham's cousin's family or whomever. Some people stayed. And so it's very likely that Ruel, his daughters, all of them are Semitic people. And so one might assume that a Semitic person recognizes another Semitic person. I think that the answer is either it was really more of a city mouse, country mouse moment where, you know, he came out of the big city of, you know, Egypt, which is not a city, by the way, I know that. Um, but you have, you have this sense of, you know, you came, how, how can I say this? It, it would, uh, uh, I don't know how to do this without it sounding derogatory. Egypt was very much a well-formed nation. And so even things like the quality of the fabric of the clothes would have been different. The amount of food available to people who lived in Egypt would have been significant. And so you're talking, you would have grown bigger, you would have been stronger, you would have been healthier. You might too, Moses in particular, probably wasn't very dark-skinned. And by that, I mean, he was not working outside. And so it's not about natural pigment as much as it is, if you're working outside over years and decades, your skin is toasted. I mean, literally. Versus the people who grew up in the king's court, would, their skin would just look very different. Um, I mean, you know, you've got a leather neck or you don't right? And so there is, all of that could contribute. Clothes he wore, quality of his skin, his physical size for having been nourished well, could all contribute to how he just does not look like them. 
It could also be that they just weren't paying attention or maybe the storyteller was not really intending us to be that specific. <laughs> I don't know. The, the answer is always a little bit, I don't know, right? That's always some portion of my answer. Um, but I do think that we can think through some of the ways in which he would have appeared to them Egyptian, even though he is ethnically not. So the question being, what language would he have spoken? Um, having been raised in Pharaoh's court, he was probably multilingual, is the truth. So we, we have a similar, to, to apply this to Jesus, we know from Matthew that Jesus was in Egypt for some period of time. There are extra-biblical stories, so that means outside of the Bible, of Jesus being an exceptional kid who was, I mean, one would think, right? I mean, he's Jesus. And so, above average, so to speak, could he have been educated well? The Bible, interestingly, has a lot of stories driven by people, I say people, men, who are exceptionally well-educated. So you've got Moses, who is almost certainly exceptionally well-educated. You've got David, who, eh, David may not count in this way. You've got Jesus, who spent some time in Egypt and had some level of education for the way that he spoke. And of course, these extra biblical stories that imply that he would have himself been multilingual because of having, having been raised in Egypt. Then you've got Paul. I mean, Paul is exceptionally well-educated, one of the top Jewish scholars of his generation, and uses that kind of exceptional education to evangelize to people in many different languages. So there is a consistent thread here to where Moses likely was extremely well-educated. What language were they speaking? Uh, I don't know. I could probably look that up, but I don't know off the top of my head. Good job, Sandra. Hit me twice with questions I don't know. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? What? It's almost 11.30. Stop it. I got to drawing, and I'm running out of time. Oh, what do I want to do? Hold on. Give me 90 seconds. Um... Jump ahead real fast. Let me just finish this. I'm gonna, I'll say more about it last, uh, next week. But let's just finish the chapter. So jump to verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. That finishes up the chapter. What has happened in these two chapters is we've gone from Joseph is a big deal in Egypt, saving his entire family from starvation, jump 400 years to a new pharaoh who does not know Joseph and has effectively oppressed the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, to those Israelites growing too strong that they begin to threaten Pharaoh's power. So Pharaoh wants to kill the babies. And Moses is saved, kills an Egyptian, has to flee Egypt, gets married and has a kid in Midian. And Pharaoh ultimately dies and the people cry out. Notice they do not cry out to God. They cry out and God hears them. We will say more about that next week. Thank you all. Good to be with you. See you next week.